Exodus chapter 21 is where we are tonight. And let's pray before we get started. Father, again, we thank you so much for every opportunity we have to come and to study your word. Because we know, Lord, as we go through your word, your word goes through us. And it corrects attitudes and it challenges our thinking. And it conforms us into the image of Jesus. And then it also speaks to us, Lord, often ever so gently of your love for us. And we thank you for that. And we ask that you again bless our Bible study and speak to us again as we study through the law of Moses. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, this past week I was browsing the internet when I ran across a humorous website. It's called the Citizen's Self-Arrest Form. The Citizen's Self-Arrest Form. And it came with the following instructions. If you witness a crime... It is your civic duty to report the crime. When a crime is committed, you have the right and responsibility to make a citizen's arrest. Thus, if you commit a crime, you should perform a citizen's self-arrest. You fill out the form. You check the box indicating the crime that you've committed and your motive behind the crime. Then you read yourself your rights. It's right there on the website. You mail this form to the nearest police headquarters, and then you stay in your house until the police arrive to arrest you. If you try to escape, you use reasonable force to restrain yourself. (laughs) And if you do escape, you report it immediately to the police. There's even a button on the website you're supposed to click to confirm that you have successfully arrested yourself. It's a pretty silly piece of humor. And yet everyone who tried to live under the law of Moses was eventually forced to initiate a citizen's self-arrest. For rather than make a man righteous, the law only exposed our failures and our guilt and our sin. The law shows us what God's righteousness looks like. It also shows us how little we measure up. And then profoundly so, it shows us how desperately we need a Savior. If we are honest to God, each one of us will be forced to initiate a citizen self-arrest. Tonight we're going to look at the laws that God gave to the Hebrews. Chapter 21 begins. Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, you shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free and pay nothing. Now remember, for the last 400 years, the Hebrews have been slaves in Egypt. Now they're free. And God says that their first concern should be the kind treatment of the slaves that are within their borders. This is how they can show how much they appreciate the freedom God has given them by how they treat the people that are in the same situation they were in. You know, it comes to a sh- as a shock to most folks that slavery actually existed under God's kingdom, ancient Israel, in the Old Testament. But slavery was a real part of their daily life. And slavery was usually a way to escape extreme poverty. Slavery in ancient Israel was sort of an ancient version of bankruptcy. If you owed someone a lot of money, you could sell yourself to your creditor and in essence work off the debt. You wouldn't become homeless and he would get his money. Or if you stole something from another person and you couldn't make restitution, you could labor for that victim 
until you had reimbursed them for their losses. It really wasn't a bad idea. The maximum stint that a Hebrew could serve as a slave was six years. And in the seventh year, he would automatically regain his freedom. I think the fact that bankruptcy laws today stay on your, or bankruptcy stays on your record, I think it's for seven years, I think probably relates back to this ancient law. Verse 7 tells us, If the slave comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her master's, and he shall go out by himself. That doesn't mean that the man will never be reunited with his family. It just means that he's going to have to purchase their release later. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. And oftentimes this would happen. I mean, the master would be so generous and so kind to the slaves that at the end of the six years of servitude, the slave would agree to stay in his master's house and serve him permanently. Hey, times were tough in that society. And oftentimes people realized that they could do a lot better as a slave in their master's house than they could ever do on their own. And so when that happened and someone wanted to be a slave voluntarily, we're told then his master would bring him to the judges and he shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him forever. The only time we've got ear piercing in the Bible right here. The pierced ear was a sign that the man had become a love slave. A slave not out of obligation, but a slave voluntarily. A slave out of love and devotion to his master. You know, in the New Testament, Paul refers to himself as a bond slave or as a love slave of Jesus Christ. Paul discovered that he could do a lot better in the Lord's house than he ever could do out on his own. I hope you've made that realization. That, hey, he is a kind, he is a merciful, he is a benevolent master. And he is so good to his servants. Why would you ever want to be on your own? I'm content just to be a love slave of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 tells us, And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. Now, a female was never really treated as a slave. If she were sold to a master's house, she came into the house as a prospective wife and in essence was betrothed to that particular master. Thus, if she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. Now, if she comes in and if for some reason this master doesn't want to go through with the marriage, then he can't just sell her off to some stranger. Rather, he had to go back to the family and give the family an opportunity to redeem her or to buy her back. It says, and if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. And if he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. Now, unlike today, if a woman fell out of favor with her husband, he wasn't allowed just to ditch her and marry someone else. He could take a second wife under this law, 
but it was his responsibility to provide for them both their food, their clothing, the marital rights. And if not, verse 11, then she shall go out free without paying money. Here's the big lesson we glean from these laws. Other ancient cultures viewed women as a piece of property. You could treat a wife however you pleased. She was totally at the man's mercy. But here God commanded in his law healthy treatment for women. Fair treatment. And in essence he revolutionized male and female roles. God was the first champion of women's rights. In verses 12 and 13, God differentiates between first-degree murder and manslaughter, a legal distinction that we hold to even to this day. He says, He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. First-degree murder always deserved capital punishment. However, if he did not lie in wait, in other words, if the murder was not premeditated, if it was unplanned, but God delivered him into his hand. And let's say the murder was a crime of passion or an accidental death. Then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. In other words, God differentiates between premeditated first degree murder and manslaughter. And he assigns a lesser penalty for manslaughter. Verse 14. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from the altar that he may die. Now later in the law of Moses, we're going to discover that God assigns six cities of refuge where a person who was guilty of manslaughter could run and could find refuge where the family of the person that he had harmed could not retaliate against him. But there was no protection for a person who premeditates this crime, for a person guilty of manslaughter, even if they went to the altar, they would be taken and they would be punished. Verse 15, very important verse. And he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Hit a parent and it'll be the last time you'll ever hit your parent. At my house, hit one of your parents and death would be a merciful plight. Verse 16. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. Kidnapping, extortion were capital crimes. Verse 17 is another warning to teenagers. Hit your parents or hit them with words. Harm them with words. And he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. If you're a teenager tonight, you need to be thankful you're not under the law of Moses. But learn from it. Learn from it. Learn what God views as important and respect your parents. God considers respect for parents a very serious issue, obviously. Now, if men contend with each other and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die but is confined to his bed, if he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. In other words, the person who inflicts a serious injury on another person needs to cover his expenses, pay his hospital bills, provide him some back pay. 
Verse 20, And if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod, so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished, notwithstanding if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. Now, a slave was considered the property of his owner, but there were limitations to that ownership. And if the owner was disciplining his servant, he couldn't get carried away and just beat him to death or kill him. No, he had rights over the slave, but there were boundaries, and they needed to be respected. Verse 22, If men fight and hurt a woman with child, so that she gives birth prematurely, Yet no, one har- no harm follows. He shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him. And he shall pay as the judges determine. In other words, the expression no harm, no foul is not biblical. Just because the baby is born with no complications, it doesn't mean that the violent act didn't cause the mother some undue emotional distress. And therefore the husband was allowed to collect damages. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, womb for womb, stripe for stripe. Verses 23 through 25 provide the overarching rule when it comes to these punishment of violent acts. The punishment should always fit the crime. If you take out my eye then your eye should be removed. Now, now, when we read this, we often read this as being harsh. Man, isn't that, doesn't that sound violent? Doesn't that sound severe? Doesn't that sound mean and cruel? But this law was in reality a call for mercy and a call for restraint and for fairness. For if you punch me in the eye, my tendency is not to punch you in the eye. My tendency is to not only punch you in the eye, but it's also to kick you in the shins. My tendency is not eye for an eye. My tendency is one-upmanship. I'm going to get back at you harder than you got back at me. Eye for an eye was God's way of tempering our desire for excessive retaliation. It's a call for fairness. Verse 26. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. If an owner goes too far and physically assaults his slave, he proves that he can't handle the responsibility that goes with the employment of those servants, and thus the slave goes free. In other words, the slave receives something more valuable than an eye or a tooth. He receives his freedom. Now, if an ox gores a man or a woman to death, I don't know if you've been worried about that this week, your ox goring somebody to death. Then the ox shall be surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. But if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in times past, if you've got a history with this ox, And it has been made known to his owner, and you knew about the violent tendencies of your ox. And he has not kept it confined, and you didn't put it in a pen or wherever you put oxes, in boxes or something. 
So that it has killed a man or a woman, your ox gets loose and goes stray and kills another person, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall also be put to death. A negligent owner bears responsibility for his violent ox or for his pit bull or his German shepherd or his mad dog poodle. Or whatever it happens to be. Verse 30. If there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life whatever is imposed on it. Now the ox's owner can commute the death sentence by paying damages for the harm the animal caused. Whether it has gored a son or gored a daughter, according to this judgment, it shall be done to him. If the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to that master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. And notice there the price for a slave was 30 shekels of silver. And what's interesting about that is that is the amount that Judas chose to receive in order to betray Jesus Christ. Matthew 26 verse 15 tells us that Judas sold his Lord for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. He had very little regard for Jesus' life, didn't he? And if a man opens a pit, or if a man digs a pit, I guess it could be a barbecue pit, and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls in it, the owner of the pit shall make it good. He shall give money to their owner, but the dead animal shall be his. In other words, the disposal is his problem. And if one man's ox hurts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide the money from it, and the dead ox they shall also divide. Or if it was known that the ox tended to thrust in time past, and its owner has not kept it confined... You knew this ox could do such a thing. He shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead animal shall be his own. Now you read about one man's ox goring another man's ox, and you're wondering tonight, what in the world does this have to do with me? But these laws are extremely applicable to us. They teach us that we are responsible for our property. Whether it's an ox or a pit bull or an open pit, or a sports car, or the family car that you allow your kid to drive. People are held accountable not only for the harm they cause, but for the injury that's caused by the possessions and the people that are under their authority. See, the intent behind this law is still extremely applicable. Chapter 22. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. In other words, the thief doesn't just pay for what he stole. He pays damages for the trouble that he caused the victim. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. In other words, if a stranger breaks into my house to steal from me, it's my right to protect myself and my family and my possessions. And under God's law, if I pull out my shotgun and blow him to bits, don't worry, I'll witness to him until the paramedics get there. 
But if I do that, I have the right to defend myself. But notice in verse 3. If someone breaks into my house one night, rips me off, I discover it the next morning, I can't just track the guy down and shoot him after the fact. We're told if the sun has risen on him, you know, the threat's passed, you're not, he stole something from you, but you know, your family's not in danger, then you can't just track him down. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He shall make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. Once the immediate danger to my family has passed, then I can't just run out and kill him for thievery. Notice, too, the emphasis on restitution. If the thief couldn't pay for the damage he caused, he was sold as a slave, and he was made to work off the amount that he owed. We're told... If the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or a donkey or sheep, he shall restore double. And again, notice nothing is said about prison. Isn't that interesting? Today somebody steals something from somebody, we throw them into prison. The victim probably never gets paid back. There's no restitution. This says nothing about prison. The emphasis in God's law is on restitution, on repairing of damage. The thief has to pay a punitive damage in the amount double to the person that he's harmed. Today, our courts just toss the thief in jail. He loses his ability to work, and the victim never gets compensated. I think God had a lot of wisdom in this law. Verse 5, if a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and it feeds in another man's field, I mean, eats up all his green grass, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field, and the best of his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that stacked grain, standing grain, or the field is consumed, he, will, he, will, he who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep, and it is stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. And notice, too, the amount of damage is specified. It's just not left up to the whim of a judge or a jury. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. In other words, if you agree to oversee your neighbor's stuff, and now their stuff turns up missing, being the caretaker, you're responsible and it's appropriate that you be scrutinized to see if you've stolen or if you've mismanaged your neighbor's goods. I think this is the first mention of what we might call white-collar crime. Here's a manager who's gone bad. He's embezzled someone else's funds, a stockbroker that's turned into a thief. Verse 9 establishes the need for tort law. Offenses occur that are not necessarily criminal offenses. And yet justice requires a remedy, and so judges were appointed to serve in this role. He says, for any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or clothing, or for any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whomever the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. If the ownership of the article is in question, then the parties in the dispute both present their cases, and then the judge makes a decision. Now, if a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, 
a sheep or any animal to keep, and it dies, is hurt or driven away, no one seeing it, then an oath of the Lord shall be between them both, that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it shall accept that, and he shall not make it good. God's law is fair. And here it acknowledges that accidents do happen. And a person who was acting in good faith should not be held responsible for a loss that was accidental. So you're keeping your neighbor's parakeet. And your cat eats it. You're not liable. Your neighbor should have known that you had a cat. Should have known they were taking a risk by letting you keep their parakeet. Verse 12. But if, in fact, it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner of it. If it is torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence, and he shall not make good what was torn. You couldn't help it. You couldn't help that a mountain lion saw your neighbor's poodle in your backyard and decided to have it for breakfast. So you just come clean, you present the evidence, here's the carcass. Poor poodle. Dog gone. (laughs) And if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make it good. Now if you borrow your neighbor's lawnmower and while in your possession it breaks down, then it's your responsibility to have that mower repaired. Now, if you go over and you see in advance that it needs repairs and it's about to fall apart, then just don't borrow it in the first place. He says, if its owner was with it, he shall not make it good. If it was hired, it came for its hire. In other words, if you lease the equipment, the astronomical price you paid to lease it should cover the repairs. Verse 16 is an important law. Very applicable for us today. If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. Notice this. Just because they have sex doesn't make them married. Now, I got to tell you, if I've talked to one, I've talked to a hundred. Couples who were living together, who had the nerve to say to me, Pastor Sandy, well, in God's eyes, we're already married. No, you're not. You can't say that. God says you're not married, for verse 16 states clearly that you aren't married until the proper legalities are fulfilled. In ancient Israel, it was the payment of a bridal price. That was the legal requirement for marriage. In America today, it's standing before a pastor or standing before a justice of the peace and exchanging vows. That becomes the legal requirements for marriage. So just because you're shacking up together doesn't mean you're married. Verse 17. How many of you have ever been asked that question or you've ever confronted somebody who, who made that statement? Now you know in the Bible where you can go and you can show them that they're wrong. Verse 17, if her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. 
In ancient times, you see, each bride sort of came with a dowry. I mean, every bride was a mail-order bride, you could say. Before you married her, you had to pay for her. You had to pay the family bridal price. And a virgin bride was more desirable, and so she came at a higher price. In this case, since the young man stole the woman's virginity, then her father had the right to expect him to pay the customary dowry for a virgin bride. Here's the point. Verses 16 and 17 basically teach us that under God's law, there was no such thing as casual sex. That's what these verses should say to us tonight. If a man had sex with a woman, he was expected to marry her and take over responsibility for her, for her care. You know, today men have sex with women and all it costs them is the price of dinner. And girls, when you give yourself away to a guy and you expect so little in return, it only cheapens your own value and degrades your own self-worth. Let me encourage all of the single men and women here tonight, never give away your sexuality without expecting a lifetime commitment in return. That's what you deserve and nothing less. Wait for marriage. The next few verses establish capital crimes. Verse 18. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. He who sacrifices to any god except to the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. In God's eyes, witchcraft and bestiality and idolatry warranted the death penalty. Apparently, the people who had sunk to such depths of depravity were a menace to society. And the risk of leaving them around... I mean, it posed a great danger to the people who who were subject to them in the midst of their rehabilitation. And so, God prescribed the death penalty. Now, today we have something available to us that they didn't have available to them. And that's the power of Jesus Christ. The grace of God. The power of the Holy Spirit. The ability of God to change a life. We as Christians have all partaken of that grace. And we've partaken of that power. And so thus, and and perhaps some of us were involved in witchcraft. Or were involved in some of these idolatrous practices. Aren't we glad that God extended grace toward us? You see, back in those days, there was no grace. There there was no power of the Holy Spirit to effect change in their lives. But today, we have that available to us. And therefore, I think our thinking should be a bit different on this. Verse 21. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. A good measure of your character is how you treat a stranger. Did you know that? Do we reach out to people who are not like us, or do we stick with the clique? God says, reach out. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. God promises to defend the defenseless. God is seriously for the underdog. God has a special place in his heart for the neediest people. He says he will personally protect the widow and the orphan. 
If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. Don't try to make a buck off a brother who's on hard times. Be kind. Be generous. Don't be greedy. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? How's he going to stay warm if you take his coat from him? Be merciful. And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. Verse 28. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. What comes out of your mouth, especially towards God and the authorities that he has set over you, are extremely important. And speaking of honoring God, you shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. One of the best ways to honor God is to pay your tithes in a regular and in a timely manner. Verse 29, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. The redemption of the firstborn was an offering that God required. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day, you shall give it to me. The way they did this is you would give your firstborn of your flock to God, and then you would redeem it or buy it back. It wasn't like the priest was hoarding up sheep or something. It was just a, an offering you made to God, and then you, you bought it back, and then the, the proceeds then went into the temple service and so forth. Verse 31. And you shall be holy men to me. You shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. You shall not throw it to the dogs. In other words, don't just be a pig, man. Don't just go in and eat like an animal. Humans should take time to prepare their foods in a healthy manner. Cook the meat. Don't just tear into an animal and start eating it raw. Don't pull off the side of the road and pig it out on roadkill or something. In other words, in our sexuality and in our consumption... Humans should be holy. In other words, we should be different than the animals. Being a party animal is not a compliment. As far as God is concerned, it's a disgrace. He wants us to be civilized, not savage. He wants us to be more like Him than like the animals. We're made in God's image. Verses nine, the first nine verses of chapter 23 discuss a number of things. Slander, perjury, bribery, good Samaritan laws, the Sabbath laws, three annual feasts, and so forth. We're going to fly through this. Chapter 23. You shall not circulate a false report. Don't slander. Do not put your hand... Don't gossip either. Don't circulate a false report. And how do you know it's false? You don't, do you? Half the time you don't know what you hear is true or false, so just keep your mouth shut. Don't circulate a false report. It's gossip. It damages people. It destroys people's lives. Idle words, false rumors. Don't do it. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Don't take a bribe. Don't perjure your testimony. Be a righteous witness. Be a person of your word. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil. Now, you teenagers need to hear this. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil. 
Develop the strength of character to go against the flow. Resist the pack mentality, the mob mentality. If everybody else jumps off a cliff, I hope you're not stupid enough to join them. Just because everybody else is rushing out to do evil, you don't have to follow the crowd. You can stand up. You can go against the flow. You can be different. Remember, toilet paper goes with the flow. You don't want to be like toilet paper. Nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. Again, be a truthful witness. Don't try to distort or misshape the facts. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. And, and you shouldn't side against the poor man, but just because he's poor, you shouldn't side in his favor either. Let truth be our, our determinator. Verse 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall be glad you saw your enemy's ox going astray, and you should just push him further in that direction and laugh as you do. Is that what it says? No. If you see your enemy's ox going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. Isn't this what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you and do good for those who hate you. Here God gives Moses a few practical examples of that, that admonition. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. Hey, real love expresses itself in action. It, it takes the time to help, to roll up its shirt sleeves and help that person. Who knows? You may be going home tonight and you may be seeing that person that you despise. They may pull off the side of the road changing a tire. This gets real practical. What are you going to do? Drive in a puddle real close to them? <laughs> Splash them? Are you going to pull off the side and help your neighbor, help your enemy? Love those who, who hate you and harm you. Jesus said that. Verse 6, you shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. Keep yourself far from a false matter. Don't get caught up in somebody else's stuff, man. Don't get caught up in somebody else's sin. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Also, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. He goes back to that. Now six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Now not only were the Hebrews to rest every seven days, they were also to let the land rest every seventh year. In Leviticus, God promises His people that the land would yield three times the crop in the sixth year to more than make up for the lack of the harvest in the seventh year. In that seventh year, the poor could go out and just collect the residue. The animals could even go out and eat what was left on the vine. It was a, uh, you know, it was a great form of welfare for the people. 
You know, it's interesting that this idea of letting the land rest once every seven years, today's agriculturalists, the experts in the field, acknowledge the wisdom of God's Old Testament plan. Today's methods of crop rotation that are practiced in all modern farming are based on this principle. Allowing the land to rest once every seven years replenishes itself of nutrients and minerals. Verse 12. Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. And this is why Chick-fil-A is making such a killing. Because their workers are refreshed. They're letting them rest one day out of seven. But God's law, and you suffer the consequences. Resting one day in seven is not only holy, but it's also healthy. And in all that I have said to you, be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. In other words, be fiercely loyal to God, so much so that you don't even mention the gods of the pagans. Verse 14. Three times you shall keep a feast to me in this year. Now when we study Leviticus, we're going to discuss Israel's seven feasts in depth. But here God speaks of the three major feasts. There are two spring feasts. The Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Pentecost. And then there was one major fall feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. Centuries later, when the temple in Jerusalem is constructed, all males... 20 years old and older, are required to come to the temple to worship during these three major feasts. They're to make three pilgrimages a year to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, to the Feast of Pentecost, and to the Feast of Harvest, or in gathering, tabernacles. All the same thing. Now you shall keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt, none shall appear before me empty. You remember, this was the feast that occurred the seven days following Passover. And of course, for us, Jesus is our Passover. It's because of him in our life that death, that judgment passes over us. Verse 16. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field. Now, 50 days after the Passover, the Hebrews celebrated the feast of harvest. The Greeks called this feast Pentecost, which means 50, 50 days after Passover. And the Feast of Harvest was the celebration of the spring harvest in Israel. It was on this very day that the Holy Spirit was poured out on Jesus' disciples. And an outpouring of spiritual power began the new spiritual harvest of souls that continues even today. And the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, the time of the fall harvest, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. And this feast will later be called tabernacles in honor of the shelter that the people lived under while they journeyed through the wilderness for those 40 years and how God supplied for them during those 40 years. Ultimately, this feast of ingathering speaks of Jesus' second coming. And the establishment of God's kingdom and the regathering or the ingathering of the Jews back to the land. Verse 17 says, Three times in the year all your males shall appear before the Lord God, 
You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with unleavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. The first of the first fruits of your land shall bring, you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Notice God's portion was never the leftovers. It was always the first of the first fruits, the pick of the litter, the best you got you needed to offer to God. God always deserves our very first and our very best. Verse 19, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, in the years following the giving of the law, this was taken as a prohibition against eating meat and dairy products at the same meal. And that's why a kosher Jew, even to this day, would never eat a cheeseburger. You, you've got the meat and the dairy products. But there are other interpretations of this verse. Some scholars believe that it refers to a pagan ritual. And it should be taken as a prohibition against idolatry. There's another interpretation. And that is that the mother's milk was meant to give life. And so you should never use what was intended to give life as a means to take life. In other words, a mother's milk should never be used as a broth for a stew that would cook up and kill something. A modern application of this might be that you shouldn't use nuclear energy which is a good thing for bad purposes, to make bombs, to blow people up. Or you shouldn't employ intrauterine technology, which is a good thing, that saves babies in order to take babies' lives in abortion. Don't take a life-giving agent and turn it into an instrument of death. That could also be what he's saying here. Well, behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way. And to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him. For he will not pardon your transgressions. For my name is in him. And we glean from other passages that this angel or this messenger that traveled with the children of Israel through the wilderness was none other than Jesus himself. And God's name is in Jesus. For Yahweh is part of the name Yeshua or Jesus. Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. And so he says, my name is in him. Literally, it's so. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. Guys, there are enemies in the land that are standing between them and the good place that God has for them. And if they obey God and if they follow God, He will cut off those enemies. And He'll do the same for you. Not just the Hivites and the Jebusites, but He'll also help you conquer the Bud Lights. And the skin tights. And the wild nights. If you'll obey his voice and follow him. In ancient Israel, God built a physical kingdom in a geographical location. And thus the blessings were physical. Military victories over the enemies. Bread and water. No sicknesses. No miscarriages. No barrenness. Material prosperity. But today God is building a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of men. 
And thus the blessings that we should expect are spiritual. A life free from sin. Peace and absence of worry. The obliteration of depression. You know, the, the avoidance of spiritual barrenness. God wants us to prosper spiritually. But there are enemies in our way, aren't there? There are enemies that oppose that spiritual prosperity that God has promised us. The Friday nights and the Bud Lights. And God wants to drive out our enemies so that we can enjoy His blessing. Verse 24. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. No compromise with the enemy, in other words. So you shall serve the Lord your God, and He will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite and the Canaanite and the Hittite from before you. I will drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. God promises a quick and a decisive victory. And you know, he makes us the same promise. The reason we don't experience it is that we don't obey his voice. Now, I love verse 30. For it explains how God works in us his victory. He says, little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. God takes on our personal Hittites one at a time. First, he conquers the drinking problem. And then the temper tantrums. And before long, you can carry on a conversation without using a cuss word. It's amazing how God does it. Little by little, he starts to take full possession of the life he wants us to live. And God begins to do this work in our hearts. Little by little. This is why we shouldn't get impatient. God helps us conquer our habits one at a time. We begin to take possession and live in total victory little by little. Verse 31. And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the sea, Philist uh, from the Red Sea to the sea, Philistia, and from the desert to the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. Israel will eventually inhabit the land from Egypt to the Euphrates. And, of course, the fulfillment of this promise is still future. God wants to drive out our enemies little by little, but tragically we can delay the process. For God warns his people in verse 32, You shall make no covenant with them nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. In other words, you can't compromise with the enemy. God's not going to drive out the Hittites if you keep them in your cupboard. God's not going to drive out the Jebusites if you keep them locked in your glove box in your car. There can be no compromise with the enemy. Don't say, oh, let's leave a few Hittites in the hills. Or a few Bud Lights in the fridge. Oh, what's the big deal with that? It is a big deal. God says it's a big deal. Coexisting with the enemy will only be a snare for you. It will only lead you to sin. 
You've got to deal ruthlessly with the foreigners in your life. The issues in your life that are foreign to God's will. Try to live with the enemy. And you'll end up spiritually defeated. I think we finished chapter 24. In chapter 24, the people once again come to the mountain of God. And they come to accept the terms of the covenant that God has spelled out for them over these last four chapters. Now God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, those were Aaron's sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. Everyone but Moses was to sort of keep a distance. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. You know, when God speaks a word to you, you really ought to write it down. You really should. You should keep a journal of the things that God says to you. We should all be glad that Moses did. (laughs) That he took the time to write these things down on a parchment. That's what we're reading tonight. And he rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the blood book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. The blood that Moses sprinkled on the altar obligated God to his part in the covenant and the blood that he sprinkled on the people obligated Israel to their part in the covenant. Now, remember John chapter 1 verse 18. It says this. It's on the big screen. No one has seen God at any time. Now a little later, Moses is going to ask to see God's glory. And God is going to hide him in a crack in the rock. And God is going to allow Moses not to see his face, but to see his backside. But this glimpse of God was very rare. Certainly no one ever saw God's face and lived to see about it, to tell about it. No one ever saw the full brunt of God's glory. No one has seen God at any time. But that's what, what, that's what makes what happens in verse 9 so special and so amazing. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. It's ironic that on the day the law was confirmed with Israel, God demonstrated His grace. On that very day, He made an exception. For He allowed Aaron and his two sons and the elders onto Mount Sinai so that verse 10 says they saw the God of Israel. Now, obviously, they didn't see His face. No one has seen God at any time in and lived to tell about it, not hit the full brunt of his glory, but apparently they saw some kind of 
some kind of manifestation of God. For the next 1,500 years, until Jesus comes in human form, no man apart from the high priest will behold God's glory again. Yet these men see God. Perhaps it was his backside. Maybe they saw Jesus Christ. Pre-incarnate Christ. But in a very real sense, they were blessed with the rare opportunity to see God and then talk about it later. Verse 11 is even more provocative. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God and they ate and drank. And what amazes me is what they do in God's presence. They, they chill. I mean, in God's presence, they're so laid back. They're chowing down. They're chilling out. They're just hanging with God. And this is so revealing to me. From a distance, God's presence was awesome. It was frightening to the people, so much so that they trembled before God and before the mountain. But apparently, when they got up close and personal with God, they felt His warmth and His love and His acceptance and His tenderness and His mercy. And it set them at ease. Maybe you're afraid of God tonight. Maybe you're kind of, whoa, I'm not sure about this. You know, Maybe you're... You fear his judgment or you fear his, his power and his presence. And you have, you're right. You have a right to fear God. But you know what? If you'll take the time, if you'll come in Christ, and if you'll come to the throne, and if you'll get up close and personal, you'll find a softer side of God. You'll discover his warmth and his love and his tenderness and his goodness. Rather than fear God, they enjoyed being with him. I find that to be so wonderful. His presence comforted. So yes, reverence God, but also be refreshed in His presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there. And I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written that you may teach them. Take these two tablets and you'll be feeling better soon. I'm going to tell that joke time and time again. I wish you'd just laugh every time I tell it. God is going to give Moses two stone tablets on which are written the Ten Commandments with God's own hand. Verse 13. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. And we're going to discover in verse 32 that Aaron and Hur were not quite as trustworthy as Moses thought. In his absence, they start some big trouble. Then Moses went up onto the, into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. Sinai must have resembled an erupting volcano, smoke and fire emanating off the top of the mountain. Verse 18, so Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And the remainder of the book of Exodus tells us what happened over these next 40 days and 40 nights. Both the glory on the mountain and the gory in the camp. 
And we'll start studying the tabernacle next time. So, we made it. It's 8 o'clock. Lord, thanks for a Bible study tonight. Thanks for speaking to our hearts. Thanks for all the many things we've talked about tonight, Lord. And I know there's some lessons that you, you spoke specifically to us. Encourage us tonight, Lord. Help us to walk in a, in a reverent manner this week. But also, Lord, help us come close to you. And chill out in your presence and enjoy your goodness and your grace. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Being gracious to us. And Lord, if we judged ourselves according to the law, we'd all have to initiate a citizen self-arrest. Because we're guilty. But we thank you that in Christ our sins are forgiven. That we're treated as if we're justified in Christ. We thank you for it. We won't tell others about it. Help us this week. In Jesus' name. God bless you guys.